0: Well, it's been probably, it's been over three months since I have uh, spoken. Feels very strange. Um, getting back in the saddle. And this week as I was considering what to speak on, um, I certainly wanted to continue uh, where we have been when I left off back in December. December. I thought, well, is there anything else to say? And tried to think, tried to think, and when I got down to it, uh, it seemed like that this morning would be probably a good time just for a recap, a consolidation, because we've covered a lot of ground in the Old Testament, um, and focused on different items with the view of seeing a coordinated and consistent message from the Old Testament Scriptures on a particular subject, topic. So, I'll be continuing with that today, but today will be a review slash uh, consolidation, just to be clear what we've been trying to accomplish. It's been interesting because my topic was the people of God, and while I was out, Chris, of course, moving through 1 Peter, hit the people of God, so he talked about it for a few weeks. Uh, but the things that I'm trying to lay the foundations for are, uh, for the most part, come from a different angle. Um, So some of this will overlap, but uh, most, I think, is a different angle. Anyway, has anybody ever read The Progress of Doctrine in the New Testament? Hands. It's just one of those books, if the Lord blesses it, it's like you want to sew it into the back of your Bible. It's just such an amazing, amazing book. Uh, If you haven't read it, you should try your hand on it. You've got to pray. Ask the Lord to... uh, to bless it to you, but it's The Progress of Doctrine in the New Testament by Thomas Dehaney Bernard. It's the uh, Bampton Lectures of 1864. After I was done reading that book, for a long time, I just said, Lord, would some- I just wish somebody would do that with the Old Testament. And uh, I've prayed and said, Lord, I-, I would love to do that with the Old Testament. I don't know that I'm the qualified person, but uh, I would sure li- love to do it or at least take a stab at it. And that's always been my sense of the Old Testament is to try to bring out of it the glory of Christ in the way that the Old Testament does present it with the blessing of God on it. And so this is one of my, I don't know, stabs at it. Not that it will ever hit the mark that I'm looking for. um, That I would like you to hear, me to hear, myself. Uh, But I'm trying. Now we got here because last... September, Chris was preaching away, and he got sick. And so I said, okay, well, I'll just pick a verse. I picked a verse out of Colossians, and, well, Chris continued to be sick, so Colossians kind of grew. And then it grew some more because Chris was still sick for week after week after week. And uh, so it grew into uh, some, I think, well, we're way off in the Old Testament. How did we get there from Colossians? And it wasn't something planned. It just happened. You remember that the book of Colossians... Is a book where there is a lot of, I don't know, worldly philosophies, false spiritualities that are seeking in that first century time with those people in Asia Minor seeking to obscure and blur and diminish the true Christ, who is Jesus Christ. No surprise, because that's been happening for the last 2,000 years, happening in our generation. Every generation has its own set of attempts and the patterns are basically the same the details may be a little different so i'm using terminology today that's out of the the 80s the 70s and the 80s but it still applies so there were these philosophies judaism mysticism asceticism trying to come in and try to reinterpret the gospel syncretism people just grabbing all these things and trying to mix and match and come up with their own version of Christianity. That's always been around. That's what was happening at Colossae. In particular, there was a growing, many of you are familiar with the term Gnosticism. It's probably something hard to grasp. The closest you would come to it in our day is uh, New Age teaching or Eastern mysticism, kind of a blend of that. That was the Gnosticism of that day. They would take the Bible and they would (coughs) rearrange the Bible to make it say all of these philosophical things of the day as people in our generation will take the Bible and rearrange it and try to make it uh, promote or teach their false spiritualities. So there's nothing new under the sun. It's been happening. So this was going on at Colossae, and Paul, in an attempt to address this at Colossae, he hits at the strategic elements of the error, he doesn't have them go out and learn the error better. He presents the truth. And as he promotes the truth, he's sort of spinning the truth in the direction of the false teaching. And so that the truth of God um, will prevail and will overcome the false things. We we're looking at Colossians 1:15 through 17. And here Paul addressing the aberrations, predominantly sort of a Judaizing version of Gnosticism. He addresses these aberrations by asserting Christ's universal preeminence. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so the first thing that Paul asserts because of what he's addressing is the preeminence of Jesus Christ in creation. Jesus is the creator and the one by whom and for whom all things have been brought into existence. It's interesting that the Gospel of John starts out with this. Some of you may not know, but the Gospel of John was actually you know, written in the 90s, 90 AD, written in this world of growing Gnosticism. It would be very much like in our day, you know, when you've got, quote, woke Christianity, where we've watched in just a few years wokeness take over the church. And there's nothing you can do about it. All you can do is talk about it because people are going to do what they're going to do. They're not under our control. And that was going on in the first century. Gnosticism was coming in and trying to mingle with the gospel and address it and move it forward in its own version of things, reassert a Gnosticized gospel. So the Gospel of John was written in that context, and the first thing John says is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Now take it, John wrote his gospel some 30 years after Colossians was written. And yet here is Paul seeing Gnosticism and he has this inherent reflex action that the first thing he needs to assert is that Jesus Christ is the Lord of creation. He is the author of creation. But before he even says that, he's the image of the invisible God. And that is what John is doing. Jesus Christ is the eternal word. He always was. In the beginning, the word was already existing. And he is God, and he is with God. He is separate from God, and yet he is God himself, the Trinity being stated very clearly. And just like Paul here says, not only is Jesus the image of the invisible God, but he's the firstborn of all creation, John goes on in verse 3, all things were created by him, and without him was not anything made that has been made. John is just going point for point what Paul is doing. And the third thing, which we see in the next section of Colossians, it says that he, in him was life, and the life is the light of men. And those three things answered the Gnosticism of the day, very simple statements. They answered the false spiritualities of our day. They answered the false religions of our day Jesus is the image of the invisible God there's no angel pantheons that produce creation there's no Greek pantheons there's no Fantasia Mickey Mouse creating the heavens and the earth there's the eternal word the image of the invisible God the Son whom the Father loves who is the author and creator of all things It's important for us to remember this in our day. Some of you may be familiar with the terminology called the New Atheists. And they call them the New Atheists because they're a radicalized version of atheism that has been foisted on the scene of human history, particularly in Western culture. They're very, I don't know, overt. They're very brute force. They're very in-your-face, and they're making a significant appeal to science for their atheism. And they're really focused on trying to establish an ethic. They want to say, we want morality, because atheists have a real hard time trying to say there's absolute truth and there's absolute morality. That's how everybody generally functions, at least subliminally. Everybody can be soft on crime until somebody robs their house. And then it becomes very personal. Like they stole my stuff. They need we need justice here. And these, these these new atheists try to go to science and elevate science to be God. Elevate science to be the source of all truth and reality and to use the equations of the physicists to demand that there is no god an absurd position but they demand that, that absurdity be accepted and it has pretty much become the rule in the culture there's a lot to say about that but in the face of that we have to assert that no there's something far beyond what you can measure in a test tube what you can discern through physics equations Behind this universe is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ, the invisible God. And because that is so, the universe has a personal touch. It's one of the things I use, or at least used to use when I would fly every week, four people to talk to, and if I could sort of move the conversation to the gospel. They'd inevitably say, I I never got a person who was a Christian, by the way, in 20 years flying, never got to talk to a Christian. Everybody was just, you know, soft atheist, hard atheist. And so there's three things I would always go to and they'd say, well, you can't prove that God exists. And I'd say, I don't believe that for a second. No, you could prove God. And they'd sort of be aghast that someone would actually say that in the 21st century that that you can prove that God exists because... The assumption, even by many Christians, is you can't, that we have to be neutral, or the best we can do is just at least say there's a possibility for God. I'm like, no, you can prove God. I could line up three children in front of this, this podium right here and give one of them an ice cream, and what are the other two going to say? Can you predict it? It's not fair. Not fair. Well, I mean, they, could be, they can't even spell the word, and that will come out of their mouth, right? <laughs> Why? Because we live in a just universe. We live in a universe where there's right and wrong. It's morally aligned, and they they know that innately, that there's justness and there's fairness because there's a personal God behind the universe who is righteous and just and true. If I was to ask someone, okay, when you get up in the morning, uh, the one I remember that I ask is, and you go to put your shoe on, do you put it on your foot or do you put it on your ear? Where do you put it? Oh, I put it on my foot. I'm like, why? Well, that's where it belongs. And say, okay, so you mean you live in a rational universe. You live in a universe where things make sense or should make sense at least in order to function. And they start to get the point. You can prove God. Where does that rationality come from? Now, The new atheists want to say it just comes out of itself, comes out of nothing. They sit there and they go, yeah, the universe created itself out of nothing. And you're like, are you really that absurd? What an absurd position. But they push it because it's the only thing they've got to deny God. And that's their point. And they will be in your face about it. The radical new atheism. You say, no, there's a rational universe because there's a rational being who is the author of this universe. And if I did not get them, I say, hey, you know, can I see your driver's license? And usually they're going to go, no. I'm like, come on, show me your driver's license and, and, and let, let me see it. Let me borrow your driver's license. And what are they going to tell me? No. Right? If they have any sense at all. Why? because I'm not them and they're not me. They're a unique person and I'm a unique person. Personhood defines humanity. Why? Where did personhood come from? It comes from God. It comes right here. A personal God who is rational and who is righteous created a universe to be populated by human beings who are in his image, who have personhood, who have rationality, and who are morally aligned. That's our position as Christians. You can prove God, you can do it. Now, if they don't accept that evidence, there's nothing you can do with that, about that. But if you start to think about that, that's some pretty powerful evidence. That's irrefutable evidence. That's massive evidence. So Paul is writing to the Colossians, and he's saying, if you're going to start with truth, you can only mess with error. You can only deal with error by promoting and establishing truth. And sometimes you have to push that error back. There's some folks who say, oh, I don't like conflict. I'm like, well, then you're not going to be, ever be a preacher or teacher of the gospel if you don't like conflict, because you're going to have conflict, because there's forces of darkness that are out to, to destroy the truth of the gospel. If you don't like conflict, fine. Stay out of the ministry. You will never be a faithful minister of Christ. Conflict is always Inevitable. Because we must always be establishing truth and pushing back error. So here's Paul. He arms these Christians at Colossae with the truth that Jesus is a personal being, the image of the invisible God who has created all things, the cosmic Christ. And Then we took the next section. Jesus is the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it is the Father's good pleasure that all the fullness should dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So does, not only does Christ have preeminence over all creation, amongst every being that exists. He is the redeemer and the head of the new humanity of God. And John, in his gospel, captures that. In him is life and the life is the light of men. Paul states it here in him is all the fullness dwells." And later he'll say, "And we get our fullness of God from him. He's light he's life. 30 years apart, these two fellows, but by the Holy Spirit of God writing the same thing from a different angle to the people of God. And again, we live in an age where Islam claims to be the light of God, and they think, at least, that they have similarities with Christianity. They may have some sources in the Old Testament that we share But they take those sources and twist and distort them. But Islam will say you've got to live a good life. Islam will say there's a day of judgment. Islam will talk about eternal life. But there's one thing missing from Islam, and what is that? Jesus, yes. But they'll talk about Jesus as a good prophet. What's missing? There's something, a glaring deficiency in Islam. They do not have an atonement. There is no atonement. There is no just basis for forgiveness of God that God provides. There is just good works balancing bad works because that's all they've got. No atonement. The only thing you're left with when you've got no atonement is some kind of hopeful balancing act. If you're a Buddhist, now, Americanized Buddhism is not exactly real Buddhism. I was in Buddhism before I became saved. So there's the American version and then there's the real version. But the Americanized version is what we have to deal with as witnesses. Buddhism will, at least American Buddhism, will talk about enlightenment. It will talk about doing good. But what does it not have? It doesn't have an atonement. What about Hinduism? Hey, you can be a god. Man, you can be elevated. And they'll talk about good, but again, real Hinduism is far more polytheistic than the American mind wants to accept. So they kind of spin it for the American way of thinking. What is Hinduism missing? What does Hinduism not have? Anybody? An atonement. What about New Age Spiritism with the crystals and all the talk about going around and out of the body experience? What does it not have? An atonement. It does not have a Jesus Christ who comes into the world to create from a whole pack of sinners a brand new humanity that can be justly forgiven from sin and brought through resurrection into a new heavens and a new earth. To know God forever, it does not have that. Buddhism does not have that. Hinduism does not have that. New Age Spiritism does not have that. All the variants of those things do not have that. Islam has maybe a couple little outline points, but nothing substantial for that. Jesus Christ is the head of the body of the church. He's the head of all creation. And he's the head of the body. He's the great redeemer. And in that he has preeminence above all things. He's the life and the light of men. So that's what we've been looking at. And the thing that we focused on was, well, he's also the head of the body, the church. Sort of isolating a passage out of Colossians 1.18, that little paragraph. We wanted to see this, the first sphere of Christ's preeminence is all creation. The second sphere is that he's the head of the body. He is the, the one who is simultaneously the head of the body and the head of the church. These two terms that seem synonymous but have some nuances that we have started to look at. So before we continue, I've been trying to find a break, because usually I do a little bit of introduction, and then we pray, and I'm like, okay. Where's my break point? So we'll have a break point here. Just ask the Lord to be with us for the rest of our time. Heavenly Father, we come before your great and majestic throne. Lord, when we uh, look at Hubble telescopes and James Webb telescopes that are about to come online and we see how fast your universe is, all we can do is just fall down and worship the God who just spun these things into existence. Lord, you are amazing. You are marvelous. Your vastness is unsearchable. Your wisdom is unsearchable. Your greatness is unsearchable. And Lord, stamped across this entire creation, that as we had that song, that sinners cannot see your glory, Your glory cannot see. All the physicists with all the telescopes miss the most important thing about your universe is that you made it. You personally created it. And they're out there finding all these stars and galaxies and different things that have uniqueness to them and they just can't see that you made every one. You gave everyone its weight, its mass, its function, its place, its gravity. Lord, all we can do is just worship you as the great creator. When we think of ourselves and other human beings around us, all we can think of is that we're made in your image. What a privilege. Dogs can be good friends, but they have no interest in looking at Hubble telescope pictures. It does not move them, but it moves us, the majesty of your creation, pointing to the majesty of the creator. Lord, we thank you for that, that we're in your image. We can feel that we've been dealt unfairly if we don't get the ice cream because we have a sense of justice. Lord, what a precious sense of things. To know righteousness and justice and equity, the wisdom that you've built into your creation, we read about in the very first verses of Proverbs. Lord, we thank you for it. We thank you that we can appreciate it, that we can know it, that we can weigh these things out. Because you've put them in our hearts. You've put the capability in our minds and hearts. Lord, we live in a marvelous universe that you've created and it's got your personal stamp all over it. And we just pray in a day when atheism is just radical and atheism is militant. And it's become the default perspective of the culture and even many a Christian We get influenced by it. Lord, just pray that we would always have that sense that you're the great creator. That all things came into being because of your will and for your good pleasure and through your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we look at the Old Testament, just pray this morning we could have your Holy Spirit and just have a sense of the great story of redemption. A story that was not made up by first century Christians, but a story that was written by you over thousands of years by just a whole lot of different people who could not possibly have collaborated. A story that consistently portrays a broken world that you have determined in sovereign grace to save. And you've determined to bring your son into it and to make him the head of the body of the church. Lord, may we always appreciate that, always know that it's not our church, it's Jesus' church. Whatever body we're a part of, it's not ours. We just should be privileged to be a part of it. Every last redeemed sinner belongs to Jesus Christ. And they a brother and sister because of that. So Lord, just pray you'd open eyes. If there are those here this morning that perhaps have different opinions than we'll be looking at, Lord, just uh, give an ability to just suspend those opinions and consider your word. Lord, I know how many a time where I had to have my opinions changed and I was glad to, not at first, but in the end glad to, have my opinions brought into conformity to your scriptures. Lord, your truth is the best truth, the only truth. And truth brings health, and it brings clarity. It brings confidence. And just pray by your Holy Spirit you'd give us that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to speed things up a bit. We started looking at the body, which is the church, and Paul says that Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. So the church is the body, the body is the church. And we reminded you, you don't go to church because if you can't say you go to if you can't say you go to body, then you don't go to church because they're equivalent. Now we know the sun rises and the sun sets, but that's not actually how it happens. So we know we go to church, but most of us know that's not really what's happening. That's just our common terminology. But at least remember. That the church of Jesus Christ is identical with the body of Jesus Christ. let that always be our definition of the church. This place, this auditorium, it's not a sanctuary, it's an auditorium. God doesn't dwell in this building. He dwells in the hearts of everybody who comes here. And collectively together, we're the body of Christ. Now, body is a term. Jesus Christ is the head of the body, the church. The body is a term that embraces the new covenant realities it's not a term found in the Old Testament it's a term found in the New Testament it reflects as you will read in that book the progress of doctrine it reflects that grand reality of the gospel that we are brought into union with Christ justification by faith is not the central doctrine of the New Testament union with Christ is That doesn't mean the justification by faith isn't core to the New Testament, but it's not the ultimate foundation of our salvation. We are brought into union with Christ, and in a federal union with Him, our sins are forgiven. And in a personal union with Him, we are dead to sin and alive unto God in Christ Jesus. And we are seated in the heavenlies because we're in union with Him. Ephesians chapter two. Union with Christ is everything, and it defines the body. And so, when you go from the Old Testament into the New, you start to appreciate more that little parable of Jesus about old wineskins and new wineskins. For a while, it was it was a big it was the terminology used a lot when they talk about body life, and it was worth talking about body life because it really is a good picture of it. But new wineskins has a real broad application. The Old Testament could talk about the body of Christ, but it could only use Old Testament terms because it did not have New Testament terminology. It did not have it because that's not how God operates. The New Testament terminology, the New Covenant terminology, awaited the coming of Jesus to establish it so that the New Terminology would make sense. You tried to talk to, you know, even Isaiah about, well, there's going to be a body of Christ. He's going to sit there and go, even though I'm a prophet, even though I read, wrote this awesome book called Isaiah, I have no clue what you're talking about. You're confusing me. They weren't ready for it. The reality had to come before the reality could be explained. And so we have this term, he's the head of the body, the church, and the church now, if you talk to to Isaiah about the church and you use the Greek word to him and the Hebrew uh, uh, equivalent, he would go, okay, you're talking about Ecclesia, you're talking about Kahal. Hey, I know what you're talking about now because that's all over in the Old Testament. And that's what I've been trying to get at. Is that this term church is a term that does reach back in the Old Testament. Body does not. Body takes you from the Gospels, into eternity. The church reaches back and pulls everything up and joins it to body to give body a richness it cannot have just on its own. And so church represents the Old Testament, the promises, the prophecies, the types, the shadows, the symbols, all those things that collectively together God uses in the prophets, and he uses them to talk about a coming future. And remember, when the prophets come, and it's so important to remember this, always remember this, All of the Old Testament covenants had been established for 200 years before the prophets started to write. And so they're taking the language of those old covenants, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. They're taking that language of the covenants that they had and they knew and they wove them together to describe a future reality in the coming of a messiah. So they were limited in their language. And all those literal things of the Davidic covenant, of the Mosaic covenant and Abraham and Noah, they had to be brought into service as types and shadows and symbols. That is not allegorism, folks. That's type typology. That's prophecy, that's shadow, that's symbol. This is Old and New Testament terminology. It's not allegory. This is not allegorical interpretation. There might be a few allegories in the Old Testament, but it's fundamentally a set of shadows and types, and we see that the New Testament uses the Old Testament often in that way. So as we looked at church, we know that church is... The same word as ekklesia. Most of us have heard that if we've been Christians for a while. So it's not an unfamiliar term. That term occurs in the Old Testament. The Old Testament background for ekklesia, first of all, is assembly and congregation. Those two terms, ekklesia, the, uh, the assembly, sunagoge, the congregation, the kahal and the adah in the Hebrew, they are similar and simultaneous terms. They identify a group of people who can be assembled together, but who are not always assembled together, and yet they are still identifiable as a group. So the first use we could find is in the book of Exodus. We went to Mount Sinai and looked at Deuteronomy. When Deuteronomy looks back at Mount Sinai, when all the children of Israel were gathered together, and and God was making that great Mosaic covenant with them. God uses the term, assemble the people to me. We want to have a kahal here. We want to have an ecclesia. So, how would you like to go to church the way that picture portrays? A big booming mountain with a fence that you can't get up on it because you'll die. And all these people gathered around. They were the assembly of God. But this terminology of assembly and congregation, kahal and adah, is also used simultaneously. In Exodus chapter 12, it means the same group. this is the Passover. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the 10th of this month, they're each one to take a lamb for themselves. And it has some details that don't fit on my page and are somewhat not necessary to our purpose. And he goes on, then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill this lamb at twilight. So here are two words used interchangeably. Kahal and Adah. Ekklesia and synagoge, assembly and congregation. And they are used of a group of people who have a unique and collective identity. But they are not all gathered together, are they? And so any idea that, that when you talk about the term church, and church can only mean assembled people, that's not true. Look at Exodus and the Passover. That's just not true. Someone will say, well, why are you bringing that up? Because I'm like, for 150 years, there was the Baptists, unfortunately, at least a small group of them. Today, they're known as hard shells. Tried to say that the only version of the church, the ecclesia, is the local church, the assembled group in a local place. There was no such thing as a universal church, but I'm just sitting here going, well, in the land of Goshen, there's a whole pile of people that are all seen as collectively one group of people. They're not meeting together, but they're the assembly in the congregation. So this word means a group of people who are identifiable, and hence a concept very close to it that is throughout the Old Testament. Inherent in this word assembly is that we are the people of God. Curse 222 times. Remember that. And we looked in Exodus, in Exodus chapter 3, chapter 5, actually 19 times in the, in, uh, the book of Exodus, you have this terminology, the people of God. That's actually where the concept begins. And so this idea of the con- con- this concept of the people of God really is established at Mount Sinai, Exodus 19. It's a chapter you should all remember, at least the first third of it. And God says, if you obey my voice and keep my covenant, here's where covenant and the people of God gets joined together, you will be my treasured possession. You will be mine. You will be my people. You're going to be my treasured possession from among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you will be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Chris dealt with that very excellently. And we looked at Leviticus. again, we're trying to understand who are the people of God. What is the nature of the people of God? What do the people of God get? Who are they? What is their hope? What is their purpose? And we see in Leviticus, where it's looking back to Mount Sinai. And he says, I will establish my covenant with you. So here's the concept of covenant. And moreover, I will make my dwelling among you. God is going to dwell with his people, the people of God. The people who are in covenant with me, I want to dwell with. I want to be with. And my soul will not reject you, and I will also walk among you and be your God. You will be my people, and I will be your God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. This is all based on redemption. So based on a redemptive act of God, God brought a people out of bondage to himself to be his people so that he could dwell among them and walk among them and be in a covenant relationship with him. And this is all Old Testament type and shadow. We then sort of out of order, again, this was unplanned when I first delivered it, the next time, which will probably be in the new heavens and new earth, uh, at least for me anyway, Um, the next time I deliver this, maybe I'll get them in order, but I didn't, so... Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. Here's this terminology of covenant. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Now, if you read this chapter, the reason God is saying house of Israel and house of Judah, because he says specifically in the chapter, hey, you people that were at Mount Sinai. So that can't be Gentiles, right? Were there there any Gentiles at Mount Sinai? were they not all the Israelites? So that's why there is only the terminology of house of Israel and house of Judah. And as we shall see, this does not rule out the Gentiles. It's just in the context, it's not pertinent to use that terminology. I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. So God here in Jeremiah 31, some seven, eight hundred years after the covenant was made at Mount Sinai. That's a long time. Our country is 200 years old and we're wondering now if we're going to make it. The God says that old covenant did not establish anything. You broke it and you broke it. That is the message of the prophets. They take the material out of the last chapters of Deuteronomy, and they're always bringing the Israelites and saying, look, here's what I told you, here's what you agreed to, and here's what you're not doing. You're breaking my covenant. And God is saying, that old Mosaic covenant just doesn't work. Not because the covenant's bad. It's because you all can't keep it. The problem with the old covenant was not that, oh, it was a Law covenant, and therefore we need a grace covenant so much as just they couldn't keep it because that's all it was was law. And law can't save anybody. According to the book of Romans in chapter 5, what can law do as far as your guilt? Can it absolve you of anything? Can the law say, okay, you can be forgiven? In Romans chapter 5, the law came to do what? To intensify guilt, to show that <clears throat> All you can do in yourself is be guilty. When someone comes in and says, Well, you know, I think you're talking to them about, you know, hey, what are you going to do when you die? Well, you know, I've done some good things in my life and I'm just sort of hoping it's going to balance everything out. And it's, it's a usual scenario, it comes in different details, different perspectives, but it's basically the same. I am ready to meet God on the basis of my supposed good works and bad works. I'm ready to go to the living God and present him those things. And I have some kind of confidence that it's going to turn out in my favor. What does Romans 5 say? Not going to turn out in your favor. You bring your works before God, and the only thing God's righteous law can ever do for you is tell you how guilty you are. Law does not work. Cannot save anybody. It can only tell you that you need to be saved and your little good works methodologies aren't going to cut it with God. And so because this covenant could not work because it's based on law and this covenant could not change a person's heart, could it? Could you go to Moses and get a new heart? Yes? No? Moses in the Sinaitic Covenant cannot give you a new heart. It can certainly tell you you need one. That's what Romans 6, 7, and 8 are all about. Particularly chapter 7. I find that according to the law, you know, when I want to do good, what? Evil is present. The law doesn't enable me to keep it There's no power in the law. All it does is just show how utterly imperfect and incapable I am. That old Sinaitic covenant that we looked at that had all the wonderful types and shadows, you're going to be my people, my unpossession from among all the peoples, you're going to be kingdom and priests, it could not accomplish its goal. Not because the law is bad. Because you and I are just rotten dirtball sinners. That's just who we are. They broke that covenant, God says. But God says, in the future, this is the covenant I'm going to make with the house of Israel after those days. Those days point to something, but it's a very future thing. I will put my law within them, and on their heart will I write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor, saying... Know the Lord, for they will all know me from the least to the greatest, and I will declare as the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin will I remember no more. Here is a covenant that can save sinners. The Mosaic covenant could not save sinners. This is a covenant that can save sinners. This is a covenant that you want to go, wow. God can accomplish some things that I cannot do on my own. I need the absolute power and grace of God. Notice the result of this covenant is that I will be your God and you will be my people. This theme that goes throughout the whole entire Bible, the people of God. Notice how central covenant is to this. And so there are similarities between the old and new covenants. They both demand righteousness and so on, but there are dissimilarities. This new covenant that Jeremiah talks about, comes with a certainty of promise as the writer of the hebrews says it's based on it's a better covenant based on better promises promises that can get the job done which the old covenant could not god in this says four times he says thus declares the lord this is a certain thing this is a sovereign thing Five times we read in that passage, if you look at it, I will, it's there five times. Again, if you look at it, it says they will, because I will, they will. There is a certainty about this covenant that could not ever be said about the Mosaic Covenant. And if you look at the language, there is also a future replacement. Now, I know in our day, people have sort of made what they call replacement theology. I never came up with it, but they did. And I'm like, you know, if I'm looking at a new covenant here that's going to do what with the old covenant? What is it going to do? Now, who said that? Steve Cowden, All millennialists, or? Jeremiah. Jeremiah. You see, the message of the Old Testament is, is, here's this covenant, but you can't keep it. You'll never be able to keep it. And because of that, there's an expiration date on that covenant because it's going to get replaced. It's not going to be just put to the side where the two are operating together. It's going to be replaced. It's going to be done away. Now, what constituted the, the, the nation of Israel to be the people of God? Didn't you just read in Exodus 19 if you keep my covenant, then I will be your God and you will be my people? Isn't that what it said? Wasn't that the deal? They were the people of God because there was a covenant that made them the people of God. Now, what happens when that covenant goes away? What's going to happen? Are they still the people of God? There's a lot of folks who say, oh yeah, they're still the people of God, but it, I'm just, it confuses me when they say that. I'm like, where do you get that? Because Jeremiah says, nada, that's not so. I've got a new covenant. When that new covenant comes into the force, it will constitute the new people of God who are redeemed from all nations, including Israelites. And it's a covenant that reaches backward into the Old Testament. Read Hebrews chapter 9. It reaches back into the Old Testament. And it is that, not the blood of bulls and goats that ever saved anybody in the Old Testament. is the anticipation of the blood of the Lamb of God. Hebrews 9 is very clear about that. The passing over the sins done aforetime. Romans chapter 3. The cross of Christ is the place where any sinner who is ever going to be saved is saved. Not the types and shadows, but the reality in Christ is what saves any and every individual. There's an internalized righteousness, and just remember that. What you could not get from Moses, you can get from Jesus Christ. You can have a law written on your heart, you can have your heart changed. There's a personal knowledge of God. Everyone's not going to say, know the Lord, they're all going to know me. If you're a Christian, you start to know God. You don't know him like you want, or you ought, but you know God. And the more you grow in grace and in knowledge of the Lord, which we read in Second Peter, you know God more. And that old covenant could not forgive you. All it could do is every year on the Day of Atonement remind you that your sins not are forgiven, but aren't forgiven. Kind of a strange Day of Atonement, isn't it? An atonement that reminds you, you've got to do this every year or you're 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 cooked. The new covenant comes with one sacrifice for sins for all time, Hebrews chapter 10. And that's the new covenant. And then there's this ultimate basis for the people of God. In the book of Revelation, you have a picture of it, that woman in chapter 12 arrayed with the sun and the moon under her feet. The people of God from every generation. Believers from all ages. Now we went from there to Isaiah. Again, my people is the theme. Isaiah 41 begins with, Oh, comfort my people, says your God. I mean, my people's like right up front. We got into the servant songs. We looked at a few. There are servant songs about this individual who is a servant, who has an identity, a mission. He has sufferings, and he has glories that result in it. And there are a number of specific passages in Isaiah 40 through 55. The individual. Also in Isaiah through there's this other passage that talk about a collective. There's the terminology of Jacob, Israel, and the nations together, simultaneously. Now there's a third mention of who is a servant in these passages, and it's Cyrus, who's a Persian king. God used him to deliver the Israelites out of Babylon. But that's just really a sideshow. Not if you were being delivered, but certainly in the, in the message of Isaiah. We looked at one section where there is this individual servant of the Lord. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. God delights in Jesus Christ. As he says, I always do the will of the Father, therefore he loves me, John 10. He loves me because I'm the good shepherd and I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. My servant in whom my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him. The River Jordan. Jesus being baptized. We all go, huh, what? And Well, if he's the eternal God, how come he needs the Holy Spirit to come on him? Because he's also man, and he's being anointed at the River Jordan to fulfill this passage, to be anointed as Messiah. That is, as one person said, you know, Jesus did not change at the River Jordan. History changed at the River Jordan. The kingdom of God came into being. In the person of the king who is anointed at River Jordan to bring that kingdom to all nations. He's going to bring forth justice. He's going to establish justice in the earth. And this isn't woke justice, this isn't cosmic neo Marxist justice, but this is true justice. Where the oppressed is not a class of people. The oppressed are the individuals doing the oppression. If someone ever tries to tell you that, oh, well, you know, social justice aligns with the Old Testament prophet Amos and Hosea. No, it doesn't. Not even close. Social justice is about class warfare. Race, this race is better or worse than another race, or... You know, this group of identities is better or worse than the other. One's the oppressor, one's the oppressed. You read none of that in the Bible. None. You do read about individuals who oppress, and the prophets say, You better repent, or God's going to deal with you. So, in that sense, there might be social justice, but it's not the woke social justice of identity politics whatsoever. And people get easily confused. And remember, social justice in our culture is whatever someone wants it to be. There's no definitive definition. You can't go to the dictionary and go, oh, this is social justice. It's whatever it is. It's putty. But it sounds so good, doesn't it? Any of you against social justice? Chef, are you against social justice? You're thinking, well, that depends on what you mean by it. If you mean stopping people oppressing, leg- that's legitimate social justice. But if you mean there's oppressor classes and victim classes, well, that's not social justice. That's neo-Marxism. And the church should never be dabbling with that. Jesus Christ is coming to establish the justice of God. And he's going to do it among the nations, the earth, the coastlands. So we see a 100 years before that new covenant in Jeremiah, we see that the nations are the ones involved. He's not going to cry out or raise his voice. We talked about that. He's just going to be gracious. God who made the heavens and the earth is behind him, protecting him. And he's going to be appointed as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations to open blind eyes and bring prisoners from the the dungeon. Remember John the Baptist starting to scratch his head. Hey, I'm in prison here. What happened? And he says, you know, are you the Christ? Jesus says, look, the blind see... The lame walk. There's other passages in Isaiah. Jesus is bringing together, saying, "I'm the Messiah." And so Isaiah contributes to the nature of the kingdom of God: a spirit, anointed servant, a righteous and just reign, a gracious redemption, a future covenant, and it will include all nations. This is the message of the Old Testament. There's also a collective group here now: Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have what chosen. Thus saith the Lord who made you and formed you in the womb. He's going to help you. And and we looked at that, and this is terminology of creation. The great creator is now creating people, recreating their spirits and their souls in a new birth in Christ. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land. Interesting, that's where the sims get their term, thirsty ground. And streams on the dry ground. And that was just a (coughs) poetic picture of, I'm going to pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They're going to spring up uh, like grass. They're going to spring um, up among the grass like poplars and streams of water. And one will say, I am in the Lord's, and another call upon the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand the Lord's and name himself by the name of Israel. As we looked at that last time, there were some interesting things, but just remember And this is why I'm just sort of reviewing here because it's been a long time. And the next stage we're going to be dealing with is the people of God as the chosen of God. Here, Isaiah, and there are other places that that present the people of God as chosen. And that word chosen means picked from among a group. We saw it at Mount Sinai, didn't we? Here's this all peoples of the earth, and I've chosen you out of them. So it's not like today's version of choice. You pick everybody. It's no, you have to have a distinguishing selection process. You pick some from among many. This is Old Testament language, and, and some have said, Well, you know, God's just choosing Israel. So it's a group. It's a collective. He's, he's choosing this group, Israel. Well, is that what Isaiah says? They will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I'm the Lord's. Another will call upon the name of Jacob. And another will write on his hand. Does that feel like a collective choice? Or does that feel like an individual choice? That though you have a collective group, it is made up Of individual people with individual responses each one a little different each one nuanced, each one having a personalized response to God laying a hold of their lives they're going to call and they're going to say and they're going to write on their hand and they're going to name themselves by the name of Israel wait a minute You mean all these nations we just talked about who aren't Israelites after the flesh are going to name themselves by what? Anybody? The name of Israel? You see, a lot of people will say that, well, either the New Testament Christians, you know, just kind of made up Christianity as they went along and eventually became the New Testament. I'm like, that's kind of pretty hard to do when it's all in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't make it up; he fulfilled it. Paul didn't make it up; he expounded it. Does that make sense? Because there's teachings out there. Well, you know, uh, Paul had his own gospel; Jesus had it. I'm like, no, and neither of them had their own gospel. They were simply Jesus is fulfilling and realizing what is already in the Old Testament, and Paul is expounding that reality in Christ as he appeals over and over and over again to the Old Testament passages and uses subliminally the language of the Old Testament. And so when someone has heartburn because we, we use the language of the Bible and say that the church is the new Israel, are we being biblical or are we being wacky? A Gentile that we read of, someone from the nations, is going to call on the name of Jacob and write on his hand, Yahweh's, Jehovah. And he's going to say, I'm an Israelite. This is in Jeremiah, I'm sorry, in Isaiah, 700 B.C., 700 years before the reality came into being. Are we crazy or are we biblical? And so Isaiah's contribution, he adds to it in these passages, there's a spirit-filled people of God. And I think we're done. Yeah. I was hoping to get to this morning something a little new, but that was just, just a refresher on where we've been going. And next week we will take up a great passage in Isaiah, the days of Noah, and the certainty of this salvation that is portrayed and reaches back to that covenant of night and day. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before your throne. and Lord, we thank you for your holy scriptures. We thank you that, uh, Lord, we don't have to worry whether Paul invented all this stuff when all he does for the most part is appeal to the Old Testament that has already been written. Shows its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fulfillments that could not have been accomplished by any human endeavor. Lord, we're reminded that the Jews wanted to kill him after the Passover, and Jesus sovereignly precipitated it to happen at the Passover. Lord, we read where. Daniel says that the Messiah is going to be crucified in the midst of these changes of nations and there's no human being who can direct and control what nations would be in history at the time of Jesus. This all comes from you. This is all established by prophecy that cannot be manufactured in its fulfillment. Lord Jesus, we have confidence that this is one word of God. We Think of it in terms of an Old Testament and a New Testament. But in the end, we have promise, we have prophecy, we have type, we have shadow, we have narrative, we have commandment that comes to a fulfillment and a culmination as one purpose of God in the history of redemption and one word of God to proclaim all of it from beginning to end. Lord, we thank you for these holy scriptures and just pray you would bless our minds and hearts with these things. Lord we would correct anything that's amiss that we would be willing to, to subject our minds to the scriptures and sometimes that's hard because we've been taught things that I don't know we've been taught things for a long time in our life and we build an entire framework of thinking around it and then we read a passage it just seems to shake it that's not comforting but Lord it's important we just want to know your truth We want to understand the history of redemption because we are part of it. Lord, we want to be clear about it, not as an end in itself, but as a foundation to live our lives and testify and bear witness to you and serve you and demonstrate to this world that Jesus Christ is at the right hand of God and he's the savior of the world. Lord, just pray these things would be real to us. Your holy scriptures would always be speaking to us we would be totally content to believe whatever your word teaches. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.